Man, I really appreciate that song because um, this past week for me was kind of rough. Just thinking of Satan, you know, always wanting to bring up your failures. And then they sing that line, a hundred billion failures fade away. <laughs> I'm like, thank you for the grace of God. We, we don't, we're not a perfect church, but we don't want to put on any airs of we've got it together. You, maybe if one day you'll be like us. <laughs> you know that's not true. You know that we all have more baggage than a hobby airport, and we are broken people, but a hundred billion failures disappear at the cross. And that's so I'm thankful for that. Mark, come on over here. Let me have you take this microphone. Mark and his family are fairly new to Revolution. Mark and I have been coaching together for a long time. Yep. Back together this year. Yes, sir. Our sons play ball together, so uh, we had a good weekend. We did. So, yeah, but Mark's going to read God's word for us this morning, and you all follow along on the screen as he does. Luke chapter 3, verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he, John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And that, that's the beginning of the genealogy. I'm not going to have Mark read it all, all those hard names, but we will cover it a little bit later. So Mark, continue. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, and all be yours, and Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Sorry. Serve. <laughs> and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thank Thanks you. be to God. All right, thank you, Mark. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We would be lost, literally, without it. Open our eyes, open our minds, open especially our hearts so we can receive the word of God this morning and uh, become more like Christ because of it. And we ask this in your son's wonderful name and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, Mark. So uh, we all deal with temptation. There was a guy who was trying to lose weight and was doing a really good job of it, and he asked his friends at work to keep him accountable on the losing of weight. But one day, 
on his way in, he was passing. He just so happened to drive by his favorite bakery, and he saw the, that they were let, putting out fresh uh, coffee cakes in the window. And he's like, "Oh man, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this." And he drove on past. And he's like, "Oh, but I really want one, God. If you want me to have one, when I circle back around, there will be a parking space right at the front door." And so he circled around, and sure enough, on the eighth time, there was a parking space, and he pulled in. And the funny thing is that that's really how some of us deal with temptation. We, we really get what we want and we pray it the way we want to. Satan is going to tempt Jesus here and Jesus is going to tell us how not to eat coffee cake. That's what he's going to do this morning, okay? So here's how we're going to like break down this passage. There's actually three things going on here in this passage. There's the baptism of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus, and, and the temptation of Jesus. So that's the way we're going to break it up. But before that, it's going to talk about the forerunner of Jesus, who is the forerunner of Jesus. Good for you. Okay. And so there's the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And what's interesting about the, 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 the two, three, and four is Luke is putting them together to show you something important, that all three showed that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay. We'll talk about that more in just a moment, but let's go here. So remember what John the Baptist said last week? He welcomed everybody to church saying, hey, welcome to church, a bunch of brood of vipers. <laughs> it's like they're really harsh. I'm like, hey, why don't you tell us what you really think, John? I mean, he was really, really direct. And he would just really scold them and tell them how they need to repent, they need to be right. And what he was asking them to do was just like blowing the minds of the Jews because Jews weren't baptized in the Old Testament. Who was? Gentiles were. And Jews thought they're up here. Gentiles, you're way down here. You want to become one of us, you need to get baptized. And John the Baptist said, all y'all need to get baptized. You're all down here. And so that was the message of repentance. And so, and then it, Luke just casually says, yeah, and John didn't just stop there. There was a whole bunch of many other exhortations. Like he really was letting them have about all kinds of sins. Excuse me. And, um, but after all these exhortations of just laying it, laying it down, being direct, giving them the hard truth, it says, then he preached the good news to the people. And that, that's the way it is in the Bible. There is good news and there is bad news. The word gospel means good news. But there is no good news unless you understand what the bad news is. The bad news, and there, so the bad news is that you are way more simple than you realize. And I'm talking about people who are even saved. But for, for an average lost person especially, Go to any store, and if you were to just walk around and interview people with a microphone and say, hey, do you think you're a good person? 90-something percent will say, yep, I'm a good person. And yet the Bible says the exact opposite, that there is none righteous, <laughs> not even one. That's the blindness of our sin. We minimize our sin and we magnify our righteousness. And what we need to do is realize that even our righteousness is filthy rags and our sin is way worse. So that's the bad news, but the good news is that you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Okay? We'd, if we could get a glimpse of our sin, we'd understand how dire our consequences, but if we get a glimpse of the cross, we'd realize, wow, someone loved me that much to go through all that he did? Both of them, we tend not to get a good perspective, but the Bible gives us that proper perspective. So Herod the Tetrarch, remember there were seven different bad leaders going on from... Caesar, Tiberius, all the way down to the local religious leaderships. Everybody is messing it up and evil. And Herod the Tetrarch is one of them. He's like a governor of a province. 
And he had previous, he had been, he's, so this is like a flash forward in time. This hasn't happened yet, but he had been reproved by John the Baptist for Herodias, his brother's wife. This is a really sketchy um, situation here. Uh, David Guzik described it this way. The relationship between Herod and Herodias, Herod's the man, Herodias is the woman, was both complicated and sinful. He was her uncle, and he seduced her for, and still stole him from his half-brother. And here's the weird thing about this. They were, to her, she was to them both a niece. <laughs> so the niece marries her uncle, but then the other uncle steals her from his half-brother. I think people in Arkansas would be embarrassed by this story. Okay, this is this is as crazy as this is really is good. Sorry for those of you from Arkansas. Okay, uh, in marrying Herodias, Herod at once married a woman, both his niece and his sister-in-law, at the same time. And that was that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. There was a whole lot of evil that Herod had done. He had been killing Jews left and right, persecuting people, com committing all kinds of government atrocities. He was just like as corrupt as they came. And this was like, John's like, I can't keep quiet anymore. I'm going to publicly denounce this guy. And it says, and he added this to, the, to them all. And then Herod's like, you're not going to publicly embarrass me. I'm going to throw you in jail. And again, all of this happened later, but it's just giving you, as Luke's writing the story, he says, hey, I just want to give you the context of what's happening here and who's involved. Now, when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Notice the combination of two. The heavens were opened. And the irony here is when the temptation comes, all hell is going to be opened up. You see, Luke is giving you these bookends here, and he's got the genealogy in the middle. And the Holy Spirit descended on him. This is, this is something I don't fully understand, but Luke, watch what he says. He, the Holy Spirit did in, descend in bodily form. But it says it's like a dove. So it wasn't an actual literal dove, but it was something in bodily form. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I can't say I know for sure exactly what this passage is. There's not much commentary elsewhere in the Bible. But something physically descended upon Jesus. It was like a dove, but it was the Holy Spirit. And so here's what you have with the statement of the Heavenly Father. Matthew tells us it's the voice of heaven from the Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So what you have in, in this passage right here is a very beautiful picture of the Trinity. We believe in one God, but this God exists eternally distinct three persons. And that right there is like a confusing statement. It's not, in fact, confusing is probably not a fair word. It's, it's a complex statement. There are some things like in tr trigonometry and chemistry that when people say them like Patrick, all I hear is blah, 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 science, science, science. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. But it's all true. Just because my puny brain can't understand what you engineers understand doesn't make it not true. Imagine me dismissing and saying, well, that's just stupid. If I can't understand it. And if, if the God who created chemistry and engineering is way more complicated and sophisticated than those things, how much more can there be things about God that my little puny brain cannot comprehend? But yet the, the Trinity is not just complex and sophisticated. It's beautiful. We believe that God is love, right? Did God become love? Or has he always been love? He's always been love. So the thing about love is you cannot be love unless you have someone to love. 
You with me? So before God created angels or human beings, who was being loved and who was doing the loving? God the Father was loving the Son. The Son was loving the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Father. They were loving one another. And the Old, in the, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah and other books, are, it confirms this eternal dance that the Trinity does, that it just uh, I, I love a one, one for another. And so it's a beautiful picture and how we relate to it all. And again, there's so many things about God, His sovereignty, His providence, the Trinity, that again, our little brains can't comprehend, but that doesn't make them stupid. We live in a world where anything we don't understand, we just mark it off as dumb. So this brings up an interesting question. Why was Jesus baptized? I mean, both types of baptism, John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance, okay? Paul preaches a baptism for believers. There are two different baptisms. Neither one of them saved anybody. In fact, it's possible for someone to participate in the baptism of repentance and not be saved yet because they're like, well, I'm searching for God, and I want to find God, and then the resurrection happens. And like, oh, now I understand it all. Yes, and they trust in Christ and his death by resurrection. They become saved, and then they have the believer's baptism. So this one baptism didn't replace the other, but did either one apply to Jesus? Did Jesus need to repent? No. Did Jesus get saved later in life? No. Okay, let me give you several reasons why Jesus was baptized. Number one, it was to confirm John's ministry, that, hey, John, what you're doing is right. And I'm going to set an example for everybody else, and I'm going to endorse you in this. Then there's John's, the way in the Gospel of John that he presents the Aaronic priesthood of Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice and the Lamb of God. So there's that part of that. And then there's to be publicly identified as the Messiah, because that's where the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form, and the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. So this is the stamp of approval on Jesus' ministry and messianic office. It was also to point to the gospel, because when someone gets baptized, what are they saying? You see me holding someone here, you know, and I'm saying, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? And say, yes, I have. Okay, based on your public profession, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his what? His death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So there's the gospel right there. The death, burial, and resurrection is what Jesus is pointing to through his baptism. This is a foreshadow. Hey, this is what's going to happen in three years. I'm going to die, be buried, and rise again. He's also identifying with sinners. He's saying, hey, I'm one of you. I'm like the common people. I'm willing to do this. And finally, to also display the Trinity, which is what happened there with the voice and the bodily descending of the dove. So since we're talking about baptism, this brings up an interesting point and a question I want to ask you personally. Have you been scripturally baptized since you've made a decision to be saved? And there's several things in that, that question that are important. Number one, it's you, personally. <laughs> no one can get baptized for you, okay? And I say baptized scripturally because this is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. This is not. This is not. So if you've had either of those, that's not biblical. Good for you for trying, okay? Uh, you going to your brother-in-law's swimming pool and getting baptized, I don't believe it's, it's biblical. I think it's the church that is commissioned to go into all the world and baptize. So I think you need to be baptized at a Bible-believing church. That doesn't mean it has to be in a building. It could be at a beach or whatever, but it needs to be identifying with a church body because what does Romans say? We're baptized into his body. Okay, so a church body needs to be doing that. And it has it happened since you've been saved. You can say, well, I thought I was saved at 11 and I got baptized, but then I didn't realize until 19 that that was just a fake decision. Now I'm really saved. Well, guess what? Now you need to really get baptized. Because before you just got wet, okay? And it probably wasn't a very good bath either, okay? So 
answer that question. And if you haven't, if you say, hey, Gary, I, I want to be baptized, then great. Let's have a conversation and let's, let's make that decision. Now let's look at the genealogy of Jesus. Again, I spared Mark of all those hard names, okay? But uh, Jesus, when he w- began his ministry, excuse me, he was about 30 years old, about, okay? And that age is important. Remember, what, we just finished the book of Genesis, right? Now we're going through the book of Luke, verse by verse. In Genesis, most of that, the most outstanding character was about who? Joseph. Joseph was a beautiful picture of Christ. When did Joseph get elevated to the right hand of the throne of Egypt? 30 years old. Okay, The Levitical priests, when could they start serving? 30 years old. When did David become king? 30 years old. Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the greater Levit- Levitical priest. He's the greater King David. Okay, But he follows the same pattern to point to all three of those and many others. And then, of course, it starts as genealogy, being the son, as it was supposed, as everybody thought, of Joseph. Was he really the son of Joseph? No, Luke's being a little sarcastic here. Everybody thought that because they thought that either, number one, Joseph, Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph, or Joseph and Mary had been unfaithful to God, but neither were true. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary. But everybody thought otherwise, and that's the reputation that all three of them lived for, would live with as long as they were alive. So Matthew, here's what's something interesting. Matthew's genealogy, which I preached on the Gospel of Matthew a few years ago, and Luke's genealogy, they don't match. And some people have a problem with that. In fact, there's going to be critics and atheists that are going to say, oh, that's a contradiction in the Bible. There you go. You know, and, and, and let me just challenge any of you. If you ever have a friend that shows you what they think is a contradiction in the Bible, let me know. Because I've studied almost all of them, and all of them have very reasonable explanations, and, and they're mostly just an issue of taking things out of context. So let's do a comparison between the two and see if this truly is a contradiction, and see that the differences are intentional. They're not a mistake. God didn't mess up. First of all, Matthew, if you'll read his genealogy, he's going forward in time. He starts with Abraham, works his way forward to Jesus. Luke does the opposite. He works backwards. He starts with Jesus and works backwards. And he goes not only through Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Matthew, uh, he goes back to Adam in order to connect him to the Jews. Matthew's gospel is written to Jews to show that, hey, this is uh, our Messiah. Okay? Luke has a different agenda. He goes from Adam to connect him to all humanity because Luke is writing to Gentiles. That's why he goes back to Adam, the first man, the father of us all. Matthew was written for Jews. Luke was written for Gentiles, so we got the reason the genealogies are different is because they've got different agendas. But also, Matthew traces his lineage through David, David's son Solomon. What, what was Solomon after David? He was the next king. So he's trying to show the kingship of Christ, but Luke picks a different son. That's still an accurate genealogy. He just picks a different son of David. He picks Nathan. We have three Nathans in the house this morning, right? The trinity of them, okay? And he's basically... Because Matthew's trying to show, hey, Jesus is king. Luke's trying to say, hey, Jesus is just one of us. He's an ordinary guy like Nathan. I won't make any sarcastic comments to our Nathans, okay? Um, Matt, 
Matthew's going through Joseph's ancestry, okay? Joseph, Jesus has got a, a mother and a foster father, but legally he's adopted so he can go through his dad's uh, lineage. And Luke is going to go the other direction and go through Mary's ancestry. You've got two ancestries. It's just, it's just like if, it's, if I said to you, uh, Patrick, what's your grandfather's name? Exactly. If you said, you, name your um, mother's side. Risden, okay. If I ask Stacy, Stacy, what's Patrick's grandfather's name? What's the one on the father's side? Your father's side. No, no, I'm asking him. Yeah, yours. Patrick's, what's Patrick's dad's dad? So if she had said Arthur and he said Risden, so, oh, look, they're contradicting. No, one went to the mom's side, one went to the dad's side. That's not a contradiction. But yet people will not take just five minutes to Google why do the genealogies not agree? But college professors at the University of Texas say, oh, the Bible has contradictions. This is one of them. And it's just like five minutes of research. Just five minutes would expose all this. Joseph's is called the, in Matthew's genealogy, Joseph's father, is, it says it's Jacob. This is the one that they think is even the bigger contradiction. But in Luke, it says Joseph's father is Heli. Now, here's the thing. In the Greek, there is no son of, son of, son of. It says Abraham of Jacob, Jacob of Joseph, and it just says of. So it's from the father of. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. Heli is not Joseph's biological dad, biological father. He's his father-in-law. Mother's Mary, mother, Mary's father was Heli. Some translations will say Eli, same, drop the H. Okay? Now, it's been, the, one of the theories is that Mary had no brothers. So what her what her parents did was instead of adopting, because you didn't normally adopt daughters to inherit everything, they adopted Joseph, literally adopted Joseph. So to say Joseph was of Heli because he was adopted by him, and it was his father-in-law, because it, it doesn't literally mean son of, it means a son or son-in-law, any ancestor of, related to. And so there, again, no contradiction whatsoever. Matthew's emphasis is Jesus is the son of David. That's why he went through Solomon to, to talk about the kingship. Luke's emphasis is Jesus is the son of God. That's why the baptism, this is my beloved son, the genealogy, the sonship, and even the temptation. What, is, what does Satan say to Jesus? If you're the son of God. You see how all three stories fit well together. Matthew placed his genealogy at the beginning because his gospel is biographical. It's a biography. Luke is not trying to write a biography. He places it in chapter 3 because he's trying to be theological. He's trying to show you how the genealogy and all these things fit together to prove he's the son of God. And so that's why the placement is different. So let's talk about what Luke is doing here. Luke talks about at the baptism, this is my beloved what? Son. And then through the genealogy, what is it proving? That he is the son of God. And then through the temptation, what does Lucifer ask? What does Satan ask? If you are the son. You see the Trinity here? just showing these three stories connected all together. Now, we won't go through all the details of all these names. Uh, that would take weeks to do, all right? But um, we, don't, we do want to hit some of the highlights. Again, Nathan is chosen as a son of David rather than uh, Solomon because also we're going through a, a different parent here, but also to show that in his humanity, not just, not just being the king. But then also, it's really cool. You all recognize the name there in blue, Boaz. Who did Boaz marry? Ruth. Ruth was a Gentile. She was a Moabitess. 
Okay, But she's welcome into the family of God because her kinsman redeemer, Boaz, marries her and makes her her bride. Beautiful picture of Jesus there. And of course, Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. You see that, that in yellow. There's just a couple highlights from the genealogy. And then and it goes farther back and then talks about the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. There are the three patriarchs. These are the three men that we learned over and over again in Genesis in the last few months. That God says, I'm going to give you a promise. Your ancestors will be like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. And of course, Jesus is the one fulfilling this promise. So this is his genealogy. And then it goes back even farther. It talks about the son of Shem. Noah had how many sons? Three. Can you name them? Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay, good. So this genealogy goes back through the middle son, Shem who's the son of Noah. So we're going back to actual history. Noah's Ark is not a fairy tale. It's actual history. And then the th son of Methuselah. What is Methuselah known for? Oldest man, 969, right? I think 969 years, literal years, because people before the flood lived much longer. And then Enoch, what is Enoch known for? Enoch walked with God, okay? And so Jesus is going to be an example of walking, how to walk with God, even through temptation. Then we go all the way back to Seth. Remember Cain and Abel? First murder. So Cain's not going to be the godly line. Abel's gone. So God gives a new godly son. And, 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 and of course, then Adam is called the son of God or of God. Because that's how Adam got here, the man with no belly button. Here we go. All right. If this genealogy is, his, is history, and this is literal, then the earth is not millions of years old. Okay. This seems to be a big discussion amongst Christians right now. They'll go, oh, you can embrace evolution in millions, billions of years and still believe the Bible. I really don't think you can. I mean, just not just Genesis, the first few chapters, but all throughout the Bible, Paul referred to Adam and Eve as literal people. Jesus referred to Adam and Eve as literal people. The genealogies take all these dates and ages and years as literal, and so the earth cannot be millions of years old. But we don't have to choose between the Bible and science they, they, they go together. God is the God of science. And let me let some scientists talk about this. In 1971, Dr. Thomas Barnes, then at that time a professor of physics at the University of Texas at El Paso, drew fresh attention to the fact that the strength of the Earth's magnetic field was decreasing. It's measurable. It's scientifically tested. He noted that between 1835 and 1965, geophysicists had made 26 measurements of the mag magnetic dipole moment of the Earth's magnetic field. When plotted against time, that is, the year of measurement, these data points fitted a decay curve, which Barnes calculated at, had a half-life, which means it, it would decrease in half every 1,400 years. Just do the math, 1,400 years, 1,400 years backwards, and if you get to a certain point, there would be no magnetic field, which would mean no life on Earth. So therefore, on the basis, he concluded that the Earth's magnetic field was less than 10,000 years old. And so the Earth, likewise, must be that young. If you add up all the genealogies in the Bible, Adam, the ages, Methuselah, all that stuff, we have really closer to 8,000 years. But they're saying on the high side, it could be no more than 10,000 years old and support life on Earth. And yet we are told by scientists, millions and millions of years, billions and billions of years. It's not possible. The magnetic field of the Earth. This is just one data point. You take the distance from the sun. 
which we're slowly moving away. If the earth is billions and millions of years old, we would have been much closer to the sun and there would not have been life possible. So we are in the, the privileged planet space where the earth is at the right point. We're 10,000 years, we weren't too close. And in a few thousand years, we won't be too far. And God placed us in that point in time. And I can go on and on and on from the amount of dust that's on the moon to whatever else that shows the earth scientifically is much less than 10,000 years old. So we see the forerunner of Jesus in John the Baptist. We saw the baptism of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. And now we're at the last point here, the temptation of Jesus. And that's why I start off with the coffee cake, okay? So be thinking about that. Um, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to encourage y'all. I I know some of you are on reading plans where you're reading through the Bible in a year. And that's great. I'm doing that too. But definitely, whatever you do, take time to slow down and read things carefully. And ask questions. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, the the second person of the Trinity, need to be full of the Holy Spirit? That's a really good question. We need to ask good questions when we're reading the Bible. And let me, let me talk to you about that. Why would he need to be filled with the Spirit of God? Here's, here's what I believe about this. Jesus was fully God. Could do, he's the one who spoke the worlds into existence. He's the one who created the earth about seven or 8,000 years ago. He's the one who created everything. He's fully God. But he veiled himself in flesh, and he set aside his, many attributes of his deity to become very human and to go through the human experiences with no bonus help from the deity. You see what I'm saying? In other words, God never becomes tired, but Jesus chose to take on physical human form to experience fatigue, to experience hunger, to experience pain, sleeplessness, you name it, he experienced it. And so he did that to show us how to be human and how to live with the power of the Holy Spirit. So even though he had all this power on his own, he set that aside and said, you know what? I'm going to depend totally on the Spirit of God. And I'm going to show people how to be filled with the Spirit of God and walk in His power. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that when Gary tries to do the Christian life on his own, it doesn't look pretty. Okay? I need the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis to make good decisions. We have all had experiences where we want to say, oh, you stupid, you know, and we bite our tongue. We listen to the Holy Spirit. We hush up and we don't say it. We resist temptation. We we show self-control. We show love to those who don't deserve it. We have joy through the hardest of times. All those things show the filling of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is showing, hey, I'm going to show you how to depend on the Holy Spirit just in my humanness alone. And so when Jesus is walking through most of his life, all he's doing is being a human filled with the Spirit. Not, we said, well, it's easy for him to do all those things. He's God. He set that aside, okay, as far as accessing the power. It's like when you play basketball with your kid and you play left-handed. Right, Mark, that's how you play Nathan, right? You just play left hand, to be fair, right? You, when you play with a toddler, you, you hold back a lot of your power so that you can be equals with them and play with them and share that human experience. And that's what Jesus is doing in this situation. So he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he returned from the Jordan. What just happened at the Jordan? He's baptized, okay? So this is a great moment. The Holy Spirit descends on him. The Father says, that's the guy. This is my beloved son in whom well please. This is all great. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, Jesus, let's go into the wilderness. I say, wait a minute, is that the way it's supposed to work? Yes, it does. In fact, do not be surprised for those of you who are new believers that when you get saved and you publicly say, hey, I want to stand for Christ. I want to live for Christ. I want to be a part of that church. I want to do things for God. And the Holy Spirit says, okay, let's go to the wilderness and see if you mean that. 
You know, Moses could not have delivered Egypt, uh, Israel from Egypt unless he had 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 something, right? The 40 is the testing. And God's saying, hey, Jesus, let's go to put you through the test. This will be the beginning of your ministry. Things are actually going to get harder before they get better. Don't buy into all this prosperity of the gospel that, that, that if, as long as you're living great, things are going great. No, things were going great for Jesus and they just got worse through no fault of his own. Okay, so he, it was the spirit that led him there, but the Satan's going to be the one that's tempting him. So it's in the wilderness, which is a picture of Israel. Not only is Jesus the second Adam, he's the second Israel. Adam was placed in the garden, tempted, failed. Israel was placed in the wilderness, tempted, failed. Jesus is now in the wilderness, but he will succeed. So for 40 days, number of testing, being tempted by the devil, okay? This is a good, helpful saying. God tests you so that you'll succeed. Satan tempts you so you'll fail. You see the difference between the two? Compare that to the book of James. And it says, and he ate nothing during those days. Wow. We Americans, we skip a meal and we think, we say, I'm starving. We're not starving. We're just a little bit hungry. Um, Charles Bronson grew up, he was so poor that the first time he had three meals in one day was when he joined the military. And he was a military hero, then he went into acting and all that stuff. But we, we, uh, we think we're starving if we haven't had an afternoon snack, you know. Can you imagine 40 days without food? Some of y'all fasted. I'm proud of you for doing that. I, I don't do it near enough, but uh, it was interesting. I was watching a program one time where, and this was a new age guy, not even Christian, who would do long periods of fasting for, nutri for uh, health benefits. And the guy asked him, that was interviewing him, said, what's the longest the human body can go fasting to where it stops being beneficial and starts being harmful? And he said, about 40 days. I'm like, yeah, the Bible's right. <laughs> a few thousand years before uh, health nutritionists knew what this was. And it says, and when the fast was ended, and see, this is what I, I, I got wrong for years. I got this wrong for years when I taught this. I thought that Jesus is supposed to be fasting and he's tempted to break the fast by eating bread. It says, no, the fast was ended. Jesus was eligible to eat. So we'll talk about that in a second. And then the, mo the greatest understatement in the Bible, or one of them, he was hungry. <laughs> yeah, you think? 40 days, you think he was hungry? I think, I'd say so. So Jesus, as I mentioned, he is the second Adam. Okay? You look at any hero in the Old Testament, Jesus is, all of them are there to show how Jesus is better than all of them. Adam had everything and he failed. Jesus literally had nothing, and he succeeded. Adam had perfect conditions around him. Jesus had the worst conditions. In fact, Mark adds to the story that he was amongst wild animals. Imagine that, you know, being going on. You're hungry, they're hungry. It's a really weird situation. Adam had companionship. He had a helper there. Jesus was totally alone. Adam began to doubt God's word because of Satan. Jesus began to quote God's word. And 1 John 2.16 says this. This is, this is a great theological umbrella that helps us understand a lot of the New Testament. It, John says, for all that is in the world, every category of temptation or sin falls in one of these three categories. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Okay, that's, that's important that those three categories are there. Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw that the tree was what? Good for food, 
delight to the eyes, able to make one wise. So help me fill in the blanks here. Adam and Eve together, Adam as the head, the one who's responsible party. What was the sin of the, the lust of the flesh? It's good for food. You know, this looks good, which is so, so weird because how many other trees did they have to pick from? Apricot, banana, you know, and this watermelon, all that, that, a bunch of food if they're hungry. But the, the Adam syndrome is we want what we cannot have. The eyes, lust of the eyes, it was, it, the fruit looked good. It looked, just looked really nice. And then the pride of life, it was able to make one wise. You see how John is saying, even Eve, from the very beginning of time, even till the end, you see that all sin falls in one of these three categories. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God. So Luke's, from the baptism to the genealogy, now to the story, what's in, on display is, is Jesus the son of God? And even Satan's asking that question himself. Then you should command the stones to become bread. The fast has ended. Jesus is eligible to eat. So then why is this a problem? If the 40-day fast has ended, what's wrong with Jesus eating bread? Here's why. Jesus never performed a single miracle for his own benefit. Think of all the miracles. Blind people's eyes, raising the dead, healing leopards, lepers, not animals, <laughs> feeding the 5,000. Who did he do it for? For everybody else. Jesus never once did a miracle for himself. In fact, on the cross, could have called 10,000 angels down. Would have been a pretty amazing miracle. Nope, it's not about me. It's about them. Who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that joy was us. He always does things for us. So what was wrong with him asking them to do this miracle was it would have been selfish. Not because it was the wrong time. It would have been selfish and Jesus wasn't there. He was going to try to depend on the Spirit of God. And of course, what does Matthew tell him? After that, angels came and ministered to him, which means angels fed him, and which is a picture of Elijah. Remember Elijah fasting in the wilderness, and, 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 and angels brought him food. So it's a great, another beautiful picture and hyperlink back to the Old Testament. And Jesus answered, it is written. Man, that is so important. Here is the Son of God. He is the Word of God become human flesh, and he's quoting the Word of God. Why is he doing that? He's trying to say, hey, I could have just said, Get out of here, Satan. Thump on your head. You know, I could send you to hell right now if I wanted to. I spoke the world's in existence. I could do whatever I want. But no, no, I'm setting all that aside. I'm going to act as a total human, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And if I'm relying on the power of the Holy Spirit, I need to rely on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So Jesus is saying, I need the Bible. Realize that? And of course, everybody, you guys know which book of the Bible does he quote from three times? Deuteronomy. We went through that, didn't we? So Jesus, is, Jesus knows Deuteronomy well. Ephesians 6.17 says, The sword of the Spirit, which is, read it with me, the Word of God. And what's interesting here is the word word doesn't mean written word. It means spoken word. He's quoting Scripture. He's saying it out loud. That's a great thing to do. He's quoting the Word of God. So the devil took him, he's trying again here, took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Why would it need to be in a moment of time? Because he's showing him the kingdoms of the world in the future as well. He's saying, hey, Jesus, this is the Roman Empire, but look, here's what's going to come. There's going to be even a United States. There's going to be all this great powers, all these things like that. He maybe went past, present, and future. I don't know, but he showed up all of them at once. It was probably an amazing cinematography display. And he's like, all this in a moment of time. All this will be yours, Jesus, if you will bow down and worship me. And he said to you, 
I will give all this authority. And that's the interesting thing is, why does Satan have the authority to do this? Because Adam forfeited it. God said, hey, rule the world with me. I'm going to delegate planet Earth to you, Adam and Eve. You guys rule together, and they absolved their authority. They relinquished their throne to Satan. So now Satan is called the God of this world. So Satan is temporarily in control right here because he has a rebellious planet that's following him, just like a third of the angels followed him. He said, so therefore I have this authority, and it's been delivered to me by Adam. And this is an interesting phrase here, and I will give it to whom I will. Did you know Satan's still doing that to this, to this day? Do you ever wonder why you look around planet Earth and you say, why are almost the overwhelming majority of world leaders evil? Think about it. You would think that maybe half the, the countries have good leaders and half have bad. I think it's safe to say 85 to 90% of the prime ministers, presidents, kings, and leaders of this planet are evil. Evil. I mean, think about even in our country, which is based, founded by, by, on biblical principles, look at how many corrupt presidents we've had and how they're, they're all tainted. It's because you know, the God of this world says, okay, you know what? You're, you're president and uh, you're king of this country and you'll be prime minister over there. The one calling the shots is the devil. So you think he's going to pick good people? I think every once in a while, God just shows, hey, I'm going to get you all voted over here just to play with Satan a little bit. But the, we should not be excited when we find, oh, well, this is our chance to get a godly president. It's probably not going to happen. It's probably not going to happen in our lifetime. I don't know that it's ever happened. It's interesting. It, for years and years and years, the first born-again president was Jimmy Carter. He was horrible. He was pitiful. And I don't even know if he's a true Christian. That's a whole other discussion. Think about that. Our, our country, all around the world, Satan's the one saying, I'll give it to whom I will. He's the one picking them. So don't be surprised that the majority, if not all of them at one time, are evil. He said, this will all be yours if you will what? Worship me. Worship me. That is Satan's problem, pride. Satan was, as many people think, was the worship leader in heaven. He would lead all the angels or the stars of God as they were called to worship and sing praise and holy, holy, holy to, the, to God. And one day he's like, I want to be like the Most High. I want this attention. And this is at a window of time when angels had some choice. They don't anymore. That's another discussion. You can ask me during Q&A if you want. Um, and Satan was like, me, me, me. I, I want this worship to be about me. I want to be, I don't want to, he didn't even necessarily want to overtop God. He just said, I want to be like God. I want to be like the most high. See, when we crave the spotlight or do anything to get attention, to draw it to us, we are more like the devil than we are like Jesus. You know, the me monster we were talking about this morning. When we're like, oh yeah, well I did this. You know, and we 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 say things, we brag, we exaggerate, we do all kinds of things to the people say, wow, look at you. That is literally satanic. That's what Satan does. He's like, no, look at me, look at me, worship me, Jesus, worship me. He says, if you'll do this, all will be yours. And he's promising this, but you know what? All was supposed to be Jesus's anyway. If Jesus was supposed to be king of kings, and he is, why is it wrong for Jesus to receive all the kingdoms of the world? Aren't they supposed to be his anyway? I mean, isn't that what he's coming back for, to establish his kingdom and to rule the world? Satan is offering a shortcut. What did Jesus have to go through first before he'd receive the crown? The cross. 
You see, Satan was offering a crown without a cross. Satan's temptations always involve shortcuts. Young people, listen to this carefully, because you have most, more of your life ahead of you than most of us, but it applies to all of us, but especially to, to the, our young people. Satan will offer you wealth without work. That's what the lottery is. That's what government handouts are. You can get do nothing. Do you understand in the last few years we've had a labor shortage in this country because we are paying people to stay home? The government, that's on purpose. It's to get you dependent upon this government so they can control you. Every check from government comes with strings, okay? And we have a generation growing up, they're expecting, I want to have a, drive a nice car like my mom and dad, I have a nice house like my mom and dad, but they don't want to do the work that mom and dad did. Okay, we're expecting the government to take care of us. You know how you go to the bathroom, you hold out your hand, and it goes, it puts soap in your hand. You hold out your hand over here, and you don't have to even turn a faucet anymore. The water comes out. You, try, you walk over to paper towel, and you just put your hands out, and the paper towel comes out. And this generation walks over to government and says, and they want wealth without work. Satan always offers shortcuts. This, this generation wants sexual pleasure without selfless parenting. Think about that. That's why abortion is so prevalent, because I want to do whatever I want with whoever I want to do. And if I get pregnant, I should be able to get rid of that. No, if you're not ready to raise a baby, you shouldn't be having sex. Sex is for people who are committed to one another and will be committed to that child because every child needs a mother and a father. Men are not worthless, as you're told. We, we, we matter, okay? And, and yet we want all the pleasure without the parenting, without the responsibility. We want gratification without the grind. We want a paycheck without performance. We want respect without responsibility. We want delight without the discipline. Satan offers us salvation without a savior. And he offers us love without limits. You see, if I love Tammy, there's limits to what I'm going to do. Think about that. But, the Bible, but people today say, oh, love is love. There's no limits. No, if you're going to, you see, uh, um, Simone Baez, she gets up at, is that her last name? No, what did I say? Biles, Biles, sorry, right, Biles? She gets up at 4.30 in the morning. She goes to the gym. She does not eat donuts for breakfast, okay? She deprives herself of sleep. She's disciplined. She works hard. She works hard. She goes home. She, she could eat burritos, but she eats really good, healthy food. She takes a little nap in the afternoon. She gets on her schoolwork. She works on it in the evening. And she goes right back to the gym. She works again. She eats a protein shake in the evening, goes to bed, gets up six hours later, and hits the gym again. But what does she do on the balance beam that nobody else can do? And what does she do on the floor that nobody else can do? You see, she loves what she does, but it means she has limits on her behavior. She has the delight of gymnastics because of the discipline of gymnastics. We want the delight without the discipline. We want the love without the limits. But that, that's what Satan always offers. He offers shortcuts. And he says, all this will be yours. But Jesus knew, hey, it will be mine, but I'm not taking any shortcuts. First, chapter, Genesis 3, 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, talking about the fruit to Adam and Eve, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Satan is prof promising that you get determined for yourself what is right and wrong. That's what the phrase there, knowing good and evil. It's not that Adam and Eve didn't recognize good and evil when they saw it. It means they weren't determining what was good and what was evil for themselves. They were depending on God and His Holy Spirit in them and the law of God written upon their hearts to determine what was right from God's point of view. 
You see, when every man does that which is right in his own eyes, we all get in trouble. You say, well, I'll do what's right for me. You do what's right for you. Oprah will say, you discover your truth. Everybody has their own truth. No, they're not. Jesus says, I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is an exclusive truth that is found only in Jesus. But Satan said, no, no, no. You guys get to determine for yourself what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And Jesus says, hey, number two, it's written. I'm going to quote scripture. And I'm sure every time Jesus quoted scripture, Satan was going, oh, I hate when he does that. And he's cringing. So you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall, shall you serve. And he took him to a third temptation, Jerusalem. And what's interesting is Luke changes the order of the temptations. And I, I don't know that there was only just three. In fact, verse 13 will kind of tell you there was probably a whole battery of temptations. But Luke says, I'm going to put the Jerusalem one last because I'm, I'm being theological, not biographical, because Jesus is working his life. Where is he heading towards? Jerusalem to the cross. I think that's what he's kind of playing. And he says he took him to the, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, that's the point here, throw yourself down from here. Just jump off. And this is what it's supposed that the pinnacle looked like. You see on that highest point there, there's a flat platform. And many times the high priest or one of the priests would walk out onto that platform and blow the trumpet. And that trumpet sound was, hey, Israel, we depend on God. It's time to pray. So think about that. This is where Jesus is standing. It's time to depend on God. Why don't you just jump off? If this is the place where we declare to the nation of Israel, this is where we depend on God, and this is where people are called to pray, why don't you pray and ask God to protect you as you jump? Does anybody here think that sounds like a good idea? Now, we all know that Jesus could have flown down if he wanted to, but again, he's behaving only in, a human, in his humanity, trying to show us how to live, depending on the, the Holy Spirit. And we don't test God. We trust God, but we don't test God. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Now he's quoting from Psalms. In fact, Psalm 91. And he says, now he's going to quote the scripture. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And there were some rabbis who really twisted the scripture and said, you know, when the Messiah comes, he's going to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Nowhere in the Bible did it say that, okay? But this, is, this was a chance for Jesus to prove he's the Messiah to these mistaken rabbis, and Satan's playing into this whole misunderstanding of Scripture. But if you read the whole context, Satan purposely left out verse 13 because verse 13 smashes him in the head. And you will tread on the lion. Who is the lion? He is the lion roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. And the adder, which is a type of snake, the young lion, and the serpent who was in the garden, you will trample underfoot. I think it would have been fun if Jesus had quoted, hey, he left out verse 13, by the way, you know, but he did that on purpose. Beware of people who take scripture out of context. You know, Bible teachers do all the time where they pull one verse out here, you know, like we all like to quote Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, that, that um, like, I, I know the plans I have for you and all that stuff. And I see God has great plans for me. Um, just read the chapters before and afterwards. It's, it's talking about you, will, you are going to suffer in captivity for a long time. But my plan is to get you out eventually. But we all like to quote just the one verse that makes things really comfortable. And Jesus answered, it is said, the third time he's quoting scripture, you shall, put, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. We are supposed to trust God, not test God. The common way Christians do this today, we do this. We, we don't jump off the pinnacle temple, but we jump headlong into sin. And we say, well, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me. That's wrong. That's not trusting God. That's testing God. That's abusing grace. 
Yeah, God will forgive you. But the consequences are going to be worse than you think. We think, oh, I'll do this sin. I know I'll pay a little consequence for it. No, it's not going to be little. If the pleasure from that sin is this, the punishment of that sin is going to be this. And when you weigh the two, you're, you're jumping headlong into sin, knowing that, oh, well, God will forgive me, is, is testing God, not trusting him. So Adam saw that the three kinds of temptation, the good for food, the light to eyes, it will make one wise. Jesus went through the same thing. Which one was a temptation of the flesh? Yeah, the hunger satisfied by bread. Which one was the temptation of the eyes? The kingdom of this world. Which one was the pride of life? Testing God. You see that? Jesus truly is the second Adam, but where Adam failed with everything, Jesus succeeded having nothing. So, verse 13 says, When the devil had ended every kind, the word ended every here, I think it means every kind of temptation. So I think there may have been more than three. It doesn't matter if there was three or not. The Bible is not a contradiction there. But an or of the every kind could be the three categories. Either one, we're not sure. He departed from him until an opportune time. That means later Jesus would be tempted of the devil. We don't know how many times. We know for sure in the garden, I think he was definitely tempted. But again, he succeeded. And, he, and in the garden, he, again, another picture of Adam and Eve in a garden being tempted. And James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Okay, So when you're tempted, just think, hold on, hold on, resist, resist. Okay, he's gone. And, and he will return, though. He'll return for an opportune time. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest. Who's our high priest? Jesus. But he is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, Jesus was tempted in all three categories, and yet he resisted without sin. Okay? Jesus went through all that for you. He became the perfect human to show, not only to show you how to live, but more importantly, he became the perfect human to be the perfect human sacrifice. You see, you could not die for your own sins because you were not a spotless lamb. A, spotless, a, a, a lamb with blemish and flaws and defects could not be a sacrifice. So Jesus had to become the perfect sacrifice to take your place. And he did that perfectly. He lived the life that you could not live. And he died the death that you should have died. So when, you, when a person realizes, wow, I'm more sinful than I think, and I'm actually more loved than I could ever realize, Jesus lived the righteous life I haven't. And he died in my place that I should have died. Let's trade places. And that's why the Bible says when you're saved, not only do you not get the punishment you deserve, you get the righteousness of Christ poured into your bank account. And so no matter what your debt of sin is, doesn't matter. You've got billions and billions in your account. You can fail and fail and fail and still not go into the red ever and ever again. Jesus has put his righteousness in, in, into you. It's not our righteousness, not a works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. So therefore, since you, if you realize all, if you truly understand the gospel, wow, I deserve that cross. Jesus went through all that temptation for me, came out flawless, then here's what I need to do. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Every time you're tempted, you go to God and you go there with confidence because Jesus is your confidence. And then you may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. And I believe this verse, the same principles apply to the lost person. You can confidently go for, to God and say, hey, 
based on what Jesus did for me, I need your mercy. And I want to find grace because I need to be saved. Do you know Christ is your Lord and Savior? 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, him for us, that he might bring us to God. Ever since Adam sinned, man and God have been separated. He brings you back into a relationship with God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Do you know Christ? Romans 6.23 says that the wages, what you deserve because of your sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. Do you know him? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus endured so much. 40 days of hunger, tempted, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat with Satan himself. And yet he won. He's victorious because he is the Son of God. His baptism shows that. His genealogy shows that. And his victory over Satan and temptation shows that. Lord, help us to not even begin to believe that we can live through this world without him. Help us to be filled with the Spirit as he is. Help us to quote the Word of God and believe the Word of God as he did. And Father, I pray for if there's one here today or one watching online who's never put their faith in Christ, that today would be the day that they would approach the throne of grace and receive mercy for their need of salvation. We thank you for loving us in spite of ourselves. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. And God's word is good, amen. (laughs) All right, Um, let's see. If you've made a decision to trust Christ, man, contact me. Let me know. Or if you maybe say, guys, I'm still not ready. I, I need to ask questions. Uh, contact me. I'll take you to lunch. We'll, we'll talk. Um, have you seen the latest weirdo TikTok trend? This lady, like 3 million people like this and are like following this where we have to release trapped water. Like she finds water bottles with some water in it. It's like, oh, we need to release it back into the eco cycle. There's 22 million gallons of water that's trapped. It's just so stupid. Let me tell you something better you can do with your time. Why not invite them to Revolution Church, okay? And uh, especially take one of those cards out there, show them the QR code, and say, hey, would you watch this video? It's six and a half minutes long. I share the gospel. And who knows, some people might get saved by doing that. All right, let's do question and answer time. Um, Is Amanda in here? I thought I saw her earlier. She's with the kids. All right. So, Sophia, would you mind helping me with this? And if you have a question, you can text in right now, or you can raise your hand if you'd rather ask it after we answer this first question. So, Sophia, what's your due date? January 29th. Oh, y'all be praying for her. There you go. Is this the first one right here? Yes, please. Okay. How do we reconcile the authority of Satan in the world with Romans 13.1? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, Romans 13.1. That's a great question. That's great. So there's no, there is no uh, conflict there. God is still sovereign. He allowed Hitler to be, uh, the, whatever he was, the chairman of the Na- National Socialist Party. That's what Nazi means, National Socialist Party. Um, he's a- allowed our president, every, anybody in any country, he's allowed that. And he says, you still have to submit to that. And think about that. Romans was written when Nero was Caesar, and he was horrible. And so Christians have no right to say, well, I'm not obeying the government. No, you need to obey it, but you, you obey it to a point. And what is that point? 
when the laws of man contradict the laws of God. That's why Peter and Silas could say, we ought to obey God rather than man. You can tell us stop preaching all day long, but we're not. And so that's the, that's the obligation you and I have. But God is sovereign. He allows evil to do what it does. He allows Satan. Satan's like a dog on a leash. He can only go so far. That's why Satan wanted to kill Job. And he said, no, no, you can't kill him, but you can do this, this, and this. So Satan is allowed to do what he did to Job, but God was had him on a leash. And so that's the where the God allows certain people to be in rule in, in a government. And even then, government has a purpose to punish evildoers and be rewarders of those that, that are good. All right, good. And then go back this way. Any other questions They're below on? I don't know. Let me put my glass on. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, this looks like these two are. Yeah, this is definitely a question. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> um, do all dreams come from God, or is Satan able to give dreams? Wow, that's a great, that's a two-part question. Let me, do all dreams come from God? I don't, th God obviously allows everything, okay? But some dreams, like if you dream that you're walking down the street and you forgot to put on your pants, I think that's just you had too much pepperoni pizza before you went to bed. I don't <laughs> think God's trying to tell you anything, okay? There's some, some dreams are so bizarre, all it is is your brain processing information. It shows that your brain is working while you're sleeping. Have you ever heard that statement that we only use 10% of our brain? That's so, we use 100% of our brain all the time. And that's not in my opinion. The scientists, of neurosurgeons have figured it out, that people's brains are working way more than 10% even while they're asleep. And so your brain is processing random information and, and, and not everything is from God as far as I'm trying to tell you something. Doesn't mean that God can't use that, okay? I think it's rare, but I think it can happen. In fact, in the Middle East right now, thousands of Muslims are coming to Christ and they don't have a Bible. God has given them dreams. And there was one guy who kept seeing in his dream 14-6, 14-6, 14-6. And he's like, why am I dreaming this? And Jesus is saying to him, 14 colon 6. And he went, found that he finally found a Christian and said, Hey, why am I having these dreams? And he goes, John 14 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, That, yes, that's what I, anyway, it's crazy. And I, again, that kind of throws my theology off a little bit on some ways, but if it's happening, I, I'm not going to contest it. So, can this part two of the question, can Satan do dreams? I, I do not know. I really don't know. I guess it's possible. If Satan, see, a lot of times people say, well, don't pray your prayers out loud because Satan can hear them. He's a spiritual being. He knows your thoughts, okay? So how much does he know? I don't know. I know he's not omniscient. God knows everything. Satan doesn't know everything. I would think especially if you're dabbling in occult things like sports and stuff like that, then Satan has a lot more influence. Yes, that's a great point. I, so I guess I would think that he probably could. Especially if you aren't dabbling in the demonic, I could see where the more possession is given up, then that could happen. That's scary, so be careful. <laughs> so this was like this, I guess maybe a second part to that question, but it was how is Satan taking Jesus to all these places? Yeah, that was, so Jesus is only cooperating. It doesn't, I don't think Jesus, Satan grabbed Jesus by the throat and forced him. I think he led him to these places because Jesus knew that this, he was led into the wilderness in the first place by the Spirit. So he knew he had to go through these tests. He knew this was part of the process. He knew that he's the greater Job, that Job went through this whole battle with Satan, and then Jesus is going to go through the same thing. 
All right. The next question. Uh, if Jesus came in the form of man but never sinned, did he have sin nature? Is it possible because of his genealogy directly from the line of Seth that he did not have a sin nature like most men? Okay, I know someone else can answer this. Who else, who else knows the answer to this question? Why did, did Jesus have a sin nature? Why not? Right. Why did he not have the blood of Adam, Rob? Oh, why did Jesus not have a, a sin nature? Born without sin because of Joseph wasn't his father. Mary was, and it was, and so remember Romans chapters six, seven, eight say that by one man sin entered in the world, and death passed upon all men because all men have sinned. Everybody who has an earthly father, you inherited your sin nature from your earthly father. Jesus didn't have an earthly father. The miracle of the egg of the woman, the conception happened. Just like you get baldness from your mom's side, you get your sin nature from your dad's side. So Jesus had no uh, sin nature. Did you know that? You get your baldness is transmitted. So don't look at your dad and say, well, he's bald, I'm bald. Anyway, sin nature is transmitted through the man. And so everybody who has a biological father has a sin nature. Jesus did not have a biological father. So therefore, he could be 100% man and 100% God. Great question. All right, let's stand and sing with the man.